Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Health Care on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. I'm founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. There have been so many developments in healthcare; it's hard to keep up. Uh, what we really need, um, whether we have a minor or even a serious condition, is a reliable source of health information. You know, kind of like a librarian. Well, turns out we have that. Our National Library of Medicine. I can tell you I found some amazing things um, through the National Library of Medicine's website uh, and, and the materials they offer for both doctors and patients. To tell us about that in more detail today, to tell us what the National Library of Medicine is and what it does, we're speaking today with the Deputy Director, Ms. Betsy Humphreys. Well, Ms. Humphreys, thank you so much for being on the show today. Why don't you start, if you don't mind, by telling our audience a little about what the National Library of Medicine is and what it does. All right. Um, I think I can start by saying that the National Library of Medicine is actually a U.S. government agency. It's part of the National Institutes of Health, which is within the Department of Health and Human Services. It's the largest biomedical and health sciences library in the world, and perhaps most important for your listeners and for people across the country and around the world is that it is the developer and provider of many electronic information services which are taken together or searched more than 2 billion times a year by people um, around the world, and, and there are different services directed toward scientists, health professionals, and the general public, and uh, some uh, that are they're of interest to all of them. I'm sorry. Did you say 2 billion times I, per year? I did say that. So, so uh, half the people on the planet, it's the equivalent of half the people on the planet using it once a year. That's, that's just absolutely amazing. I, I grew up not far from the campus of the um, National Institutes of Health, and I remember wandering into the National Library of Medicine building a few times and, and picking up books off the shelf there. It sounds like books is, has become a very, very small part of what you all do. Well, I think that it's still not an unimportant part uh, because we are, in essence, the world's archival collection of biomedical literature in print, and that includes um, some rare and unique materials and manuscripts and so forth. But in terms of the use of the services, it is the electronic databases which allow our services and our work to essentially reach um, anywhere that around, around the world that you can carry a wireless device, I guess, in your pocket. And have access to basically all of medical knowledge, thanks to you guys. Well, uh, a lot of it anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's, we're, we're going to focus um, 
on the materials for patients in a moment. But why, why don't we just talk about some of the the other um, fascinating and important things that the National Library of Medicine does that contributes to our healthcare system? Well, uh, the like the rest of the National Institutes of Health, or NIH as it's called, the National Library of Medicine is supports research and development in other organizations through grants, and it also has an intramural research program where we're primarily concerned with sort of advanced applications of computer science, information science, and advanced telecommunications to the organization and delivery of health information. So, and, so when people talk about how electronic health records are going to help us better understand how to treat patients, I imagine they have to convert those records into some kind of language that researchers can use to collate information. Is that the kind of thing you would be studying? We would certainly be studying that. And in fact, uh, the National Library of Medicine has been supporting research related to uh, computerized medical records and health records for well, since the 1970s, so I guess that's um, early 1970s, so that's going on 40 years now, wow, right? 40 years. And uh, a lot of the uh, advances and the things that are now built into electronic medical record and health systems were actually originated um, by researchers who were funded by the National Library of Medicine over that period of time. And we still fund research and development in that area because obviously there are always going to be ways that we can enhance electronic health records, make them easier for people to use, make it easier to extract information from them and provide advanced decision support for patients and their caregivers and for alerting um, the public health system if if people's individual records are, are beginning to show that, for example, um, there's been an outbreak of some food poisoning or foodborne disease or whatever. So uh, there's still a lot of research and development to be done in that area. And as you point out, one of the issues with electronic health records is whether the information in your record and my record and somebody else's record is captured or described in a fairly comparable or standardized way. And if we can move toward more standardized electronic health records, then it will be easier for us to build systems that can provide advanced decisions based on what's in a person's record or can relate um, information from one person's record to um, what's been seen in a lot of people's records perhaps to alert us to some sort of emerging infection or disease or, or some problem that uh, the public health authorities need to look into. You know, I am amazed by the change from slide rules to calculators. And, and, and similarly in that vein, um, roughly 24 years ago, I was um, applying for, my, for a residency position, a, a residency training position in dermatology, and I had narrowed my choices down to two schools, and I wanted to know what the, the, the faculty at the two schools were like and what kind of work they did, what kind of research they did in particular. And so I went to the library, this was at Duke University, and I pulled out these books. And I painstakingly, year by year, would look up in books that showed what 
these faculty had published by year. So I'd, I'd, I'd take each year, and then I'd look up each name, and then I'd see what they'd published in that year, and then I'd have to go the next year and see what the different faculty. And it was quite a process. And now that kind of information, I think thanks to you guys, is, uh, is at my fingertips. In, in seconds, I can do what took probably hours. Well, that's that's really true. The National Library of Medicine produces what is uh, the major definitive database that indexes the contents of articles in biomedical journals. And so anyone can, in effect, go in and uh, search this database by um, the authors of articles, in many cases by the institution where the um, research is taking place and so forth. And it is uh, very, very easy to pull out uh, large groups of information about what's going on in different universities. Of course, what is also great is that now you could easily go to the websites of the particular medical schools or whatever, and, and they would probably also have collected information for for you, but very often by actually including on their web pages a search of the National Library of Medicine's database to pull up the latest information on articles by particular faculty members and students and so forth. It's it's you've spoiled me basically. I you know I got asked to write some um, a promotion letter for somebody the other day and. Boy, just a couple clicks, and I can see every article that he's, you know, written in the peer-reviewed literature. Um, I, I do research on how well patients use their medicine, and you know, there was year, a few a few years ago there was the um, the anthrax scare, and mm-hmm. they they were giving postal workers um, antibiotics uh, for it, and somebody told me that. There was an article that was published on this showing that these postal workers didn't even take their antibiotic when faced with the possibility of anthrax. I mean, you can never count on people to be adhered to medication. I wanted to find this article, and going to PubMed, um, it just took a few seconds, a few mouse clicks. It's just an amazing thing. Well, it is. It's a lot easier than it used to be, that's for sure. Um, Are there any other resources that um, are used uh, by practicing physicians? I would say that that you and I were talking about finding access to the citations to articles, but of course the other thing that we have done is establish uh, links from the PubMed database so you can identify the articles, and then in many cases you can go and actually read the full text, which is very important. Um, I, I think that another database that is uh, heavily used by health professionals and researchers is clinicaltrials.gov, which is also useful for patients uh, or the general public if they're interested in seeing what clinical trials might be available for uh, that they might be interested in for themselves or family members. So tell me a little bit more about that database. What what does it include? That database basically includes information about clinical trials and other types of clinical research studies. And because of legislation that has been passed in the United States. Essentially, um, everyone who is conducting a clinical trial that is includes as one of its interve- interventions or treatments a uh, drug or a device that is regulated by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, they are basically required to register 
the clinical trial, the study, um, just as it's beginning and to provide information about what is being studied and the um, primary outcome measures that they're going to take to determine performance in the trial and um, a lot of other information where the trial is being held, if, it is, if it's held at multiple sites, where all the sites are. And so this, in essence, gives everybody advance warning that a study is being conducted even long before the results are in. But, it, but by being posted there, it's also something where uh, physicians and patients themselves or even people who wish to be a healthy volunteer in a clinical trial because they'd like to advance science can see where trials are being con- are conducted and what their purposes are and get information about how to contact somebody who could see whether, you know, somebody really would be admitted to the trial. Well, so there's Yeah, well, that's a wonderful resource. I, one of the I seem to remember this being a newsworthy issue a few years back um, that this is basically in some ways an insurance policy against um, negative studies never coming to um, you're you're absolutely right attention. because although this database has been around since the year 2000 and was originally built in response to legislation that said there should be a registry so people could be able to find trials that might be relevant to them and enroll you know and actually participate in the trial in 2007 um, another piece of legislation was passed which required that not only the trial be registered and described generally at, at its start, but also that, in fact, tables of results of the trial be put into the public database um, within a year or so after the trial's completion. And so as a result, this addresses just the problem that you're talking about. Um, there have been many studies to show that a trial that has a favorable result for the products that are being studied is much more likely to be written up and submitted for publication. And if the, the results are positive, it's also more likely to be published than uh, in, a, in a journal than if somebody did the trial and showed that it wasn't as effective or maybe there were serious adverse effects or something. Uh, and as a result... You don't get a full picture of exactly what the issues are in terms of use of of drugs and devices that that have been studied in clinical trials because now there is essentially a law that says if it's an FDA-regulated drug or device, you have to submit the results at some point. In general, it's it's a year um, after the trial has completed. Then um, this is going to help us all get around this, what they call this uh, publication bias, which is that you're much more likely to publish the good news than the bad news. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're speaking today with Betsy Humphreys, Deputy Director of the National Library of Medicine. Well, Ms. Humphreys, one of the things I find extraordinarily helpful to me in, in my practice and um, and with uh, respect to a patient, um, a medical portal for patients that I created, it's actually a doctor rating website that helps direct people to useful information. One of the things I found incredibly helpful is um, having a reputable source of, um, of 
information that patients can access that's written for patients. And um, and this is the Medline Plus service that, that, that's been created by the National Library of Medicine. Can you tell our listeners about it? Yes, I'd be glad to. This is uh, something uh, we're very proud of, and we think it's very helpful both to uh, patients and I think to their uh, physicians and other uh, care providers because I think it is reliable and it does not include advertisements or require people to provide information about themselves in order to get information, which I think is a good feature. And essentially what the National Library of Medicine does is we organize high-quality information written for the general public that is produced by a wide variety of very reputable sources, including the individual other national institutes that are part of the National Institutes of Health. That would include, for example, the National National Cancer Institute, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and there are many others. So we have very high-quality information produced here at NIH, but we also get the uh, and organize and provide access in an integrated way to information that's produced by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and and also for very reputable private organizations, the Mayo Clinic, uh, professional organizations in medicine and health. So it provides a very good portal to a wide range of information that was produced and, and written for the general public uh, patients, their families. We also include within it um, some very high-quality information sources on drugs in terms of information about the drug and uh, its possible, its purposes and its possible um, adverse effects. And we have information on, uh, in, in a variety of forms, we have in information, large amount of information in English and Spanish, but we also have information, uh, some information in more than 40 other languages. 40 languages, wow. Uh, not everything in all those 40 languages, but we do have some good information in a ver- variety of languages. And this, of course, is very useful to um, health professionals who are uh, providing services in communities where there may be uh, lots of people for whom English is not their first language. Yes, and I have those patients who speak Spanish, and when I need to come up with an information sheet on psoriasis or some other skin disease, I, I go straight to the Medline Plus website to do it. Well, that's good to hear. Um, I think that we also have information in uh, multimedia information. There are a variety of interactive tutorials within Medline Plus and these, they're both in English and Spanish, and they have the advantage of having um, interactive uh, pictures. The information is spoken, if you wish to. You can turn on your speakers and listen to it. And it also, the same information is printed on the screen. So uh, some of our providers and, and, uh, and members of the public who are trying to help people who may have, um, uh, don't have advanced reading skills find that these are very useful because, in fact, the information is spoken and it's demonstrated with pictures as well as being there in, in the written format. 
Yeah, I, 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 there's a section on videos and cool tools with just some beautiful anatomical um, videos. For example, if you want to know what a slip disc really looks like, this is <laughs> a great source. Um, uh, I, um, there are a lot of uh, videos, uh, perhaps not for some, uh, not everyone might enjoy looking at these, but there are a lot of uh, videos of actual surgical procedures, yes. which um, we have heard uh, some people are very interested in seeing exactly how the procedure is done before it's done to them or, or someone in their family. Yes, I need that hernia repair, and maybe I'll go see what it's going to involve before I actually get it done. I notice uh, highlighted on the website right now is um, information on bed bugs. That has to be bringing people in left and right right now. Yes, one of the things that we are, I think, very good at with this site and with other sites at NLM is uh, identifying what are topics that are likely to be of immediate interest and, and putting up information uh, that is useful on those topics as, as quickly as we can find it. We have done this in the past for uh, things such as the H1N1 flu. We also have put together information that's particularly relevant to people who are facing or, or helping others to cope with uh, natural disasters. So we have information uh, that we collect and make available around things like the Haiti earthquake, obviously Hurricane Katrina when that occurred, the, the health effects of, um, of oil spills and so forth in, in connection with the BP event. So we I think do a pretty good job in identifying cases where there's likely to be a lot of public interest in something and, and quickly organizing good information on that topic. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, librarians are just amazing people. And you go to the, the site and you look up something and you've, on any particular condition, it's not just a summary of that condition and what to do for it, but there's usually an entire collection of other resources and I love the word portal. You are a fabulous portal for um, providing a fabulous portal for medical inf for patients to get medical information. I, I agree with you, and um, I tend to agree also with your statement that uh, librarians are fabulous mm -hmm. people. We, of course, deal with librarians across the country through our national network of libraries of medicine, and th we have, in essence, allies and people who assist us uh, in terms of getting the word out about NLM's programs and services in communities across the country, and many of these are in hospital libraries, public libraries, community information centers. And sometimes, obviously, that's what's really needed to make the connection between a good information service and someone who uh, needs to know about it, perhaps someone who hasn't listened to your radio program or hasn't gotten on the Internet yet but is... Um, can be shown that there is valuable information that speaks their language and is useful to them or a family member, and then they can become a convert. You know, if you're sitting in, in a doctor's waiting room, you could be listening to this show, or you could be on, at the National Library of Medicine website looking up all sorts of information. Well, it's, it's clear the Internet has really changed what, what you do at the National Library of Medicine. Um, what do you think will be happening in the future? Well, uh, the Internet changed what we could do by just making it possible for us to deliver information in many more ways. And, of course, it's a big priority for us to continue that thread, that is to see
see uh, how we can make our information more useful and can deliver it in ways that will assist uh, members of the public wherever they are. So we're taking, um, we're spending more time in making our information more accessible through mobile devices, in experimenting with the use of social media, and also in um, developing special ways or better ways for our information for patients to be directly connected to the uh, patient's portal in uh, an electronic health record system or maybe to the patient's own personal health record if they've gone um, to the extent of doing that. So we, we, have a, we have a number of programs that are focused on those areas. And we also have a big uh, thrust to look at the issue of how can health information be provided in an uninterrupted way even when people are engaged in dealing with emergency and disaster situations. And there obviously are a lot of issues and problems around that, but we, we have some research and development that's particularly focused on the area of how can you ensure that people continue to have access to health information they need even if they're in, a, you know, in an area that's really broadly affected by some sort of natural disaster or other emergency. Is the National Library of Medicine um, impacted in any way by the uh, recent health care reform bill that passed? I think that in some sense, uh, I think everyone is, but in effect, we were actually more directly impact, impacted by the health information technology provisions that were part of the um, stimulus bill um, in the sense that there had been a lot of discussion on Capitol Hill for many years about having some uh, legislation that would directly encourage the implementation of electronic health record systems in um, healthcare practices and in hospitals across the United States. And as it happened, the uh, provisions that had been mostly worked out prior to the passage of the American Recovery and Revitalization Act were sort of inserted in the middle of the of that act, and there were a number of things in in the act that directly addressed um, the implementation of electronic health records, including use of standards that NLM had supported and helped to develop, and also the notion of connecting um, information for. Uh, providers and patients into electronic health records, and that also is, you know, sort of directly in line with our services. Wonderful. Well, um, I have so much appreciate your being on the show, Deputy Director Humphreys. Can you, um, do you have any parting words for our listeners about things they should be thinking about with respect to their health or health care or use of the National Library of Medicine's resources? Well, I'll just say a couple of things. Uh, one is that we hope that they all will use our services and that we always like to hear about what does work and what doesn't work when people do that. Also, I should say that if you prefer your your health information in print or in writing, we have the NIH Medline Plus magazine, which comes out quarterly and is something that anyone can request from us and get a free copy. and. 
maybe they should put that in the doctor's uh, waiting room as well, <laughs> or the clinic waiting room. Sounds like a great idea. Yes, I think so. And if you, uh, if people are uh, using mobile devices and mobile information services and are on Twitter and uh, or Facebook or whatever, you can. You can you can be on our fan page on Facebook. You can get our Twitter feeds about the latest in health information if you want to. And uh, we are always interested in hearing from people who use our services so that we can improve them. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, one other thing. Oh, yes. If, if anyone is interested in finding out more about all of this and prefers to talk to a person before they talk to a computer, they should go to their local public library or the hospital library and ask for help. Thank you so much. All right. The National Library of Medicine is an amazing use of our federal resources. Um, As Ms. Humphreys pointed out, yes, they're doing research, helping plan for the future, but even on a day-to-day basis, I don't know how um, physician researchers like myself would function without access to the resources for studying um, everything else that has um, been published in the past so we know where things stand and all. Uh, but in my practice of seeing patients, I find the National Library of Medicine to be an extraordinarily helpful resource of reputable patient information. You can go there directly. Um, you can go there th- through my doctorscore.com rating site, uh, drscore.com. Whenever you look up a doctor, um, doctorscore will based on the specialty of the doctor you look up, uh, guide you to National Library of Medicine resources. You can go to the National Library of Medicine directory, uh, directly. Their website is www.nlm, for National Library of Medicine, dot nih.gov, slash Medline Plus. Or just Google Medline Plus, M-E-D-L-I-N-E-P-L-U-S. I think you'll find it to be a terrific resource. Um, again, it's available in English, and um, much, many of their resources are available in Spanish. Well, that's our show for this week. In the coming weeks, we're looking to speak with uh, Susan Baker. She's a patient satisfaction expert. Uh, we're also looking to speak with somebody from the Center for Disease Control about some of the winnable battles they're fighting. and. Um, Perhaps we'll be also speaking with a a lawyer um, on uh, legal aspects of our electronic records and medical privacy. I want to thank you for joining us today. Our theme music is by the wonderful Michael Zioli. Until our next show, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.